0: Books with Grace. I'm Dr. Grace Hammond, medievalist writer, mother, and avid consumer of reality television. Today in the Linton Seven Capital Vices and Their Remedies series, we're talking about sloth and perseverance or strength. Does my love for terrible reality television make me a practitioner of sloth? What even is sloth? I don't think I've ever used that word casually in a conversation. Spoiler, my love for terrible reality television does not make me a sloth, nor a practitioner of sloth. Sloth is perhaps the most misunderstood of the seven capital vices, so let's dive in. Before we do, my apologies. I've got a solid cold right now lingering in my sinuses, so if my voice sounds a little different, there you go. Don't worry, I've loaded up on mucinex. So we think of sloth as laziness, as a bodily kind of sin like gluttony or lust. We treat it accordingly, mostly like a joke. In what world is laying on the couch eating potato chips and watching bad TV a deadly serious sin? Sure, maybe a problem, but truly a sin? But this isn't the ancient sense of sloth. In reality, say the earliest theorists of sloth the desert fathers and mothers and their most eminent interpreters like thomas aquinas sloth is a spiritual vice its ancient name is acedia but i will still use sloth because it's more fun to say before i go further some people have aligned acedia with clinical depression i do not because a vice involves a habitual choice whereas clinical depression is a disease Because people with clinical depression are no saintlier than anyone else, I'm sure some of them do struggle with the vice of sloth, but let's not muddy the waters and conflate the two, get ourselves into trouble when we do things like that. Sloth is resistance to charity, to our true vocation of friendship with God or with our neighbor or even love for ourselves. And this resistance to charity comes because it is too difficult or overwhelming, the classic scriptural example of this is in the Hebrew scriptures, when the Israelites refuse to enter the promised land because they are afraid of how hard it will be. Sloth is a powerful, serious, and common vice. In Rebecca de Young's words, sloth essentially concerns one's fundamental commitment to one's spiritual identity and vocation. The Book of Vices and Virtues, the medieval penitential manual that I have quoted kind of a lot in this series, calls Sloth weariness of good deeds. It's a slackness in love when that love should be burning, a pusillanimity, or unboldness, as they say, in your deeds and words. It's the person who dares not to go down a way, says the book, for fear of a snail that showeth his horns. (laughs) In other words, when we're so daunted by an obstacle, big or small, that we simply choose to go an easier way or not go at all. If you're like me, suffering under a stupid head cold, burnt out by the pandemic and parenting small children, and terrifying foreign wars and disastrous cultural discourse and fear about the environment and all that junk, you might be dazedly thinking to yourself, What is wrong with the easy way? Lord, give me easiness, I beg you. My husband and I actually went to an event the other night where we were asked to write down the desires of our heart, really, really honestly. And unsurprisingly, given my temperament and the last few years of events, the first thing I wrote was solitude. But then the second thing I wrote was an easy life, a cozy life, like a hobbit in a hole. What's so wrong about that? In fact, there's nothing wrong with ease itself or relaxing or even sometimes being lazy. Full human lives have these gifts. But the cost of valuing ease over all other goods is shockingly high, particularly in relationships. And relationships are what we are called to as God's children. Young, again, is helpful here and makes the stakes clear of choosing ease at all costs. And she interprets Aquinas' account. On Aquinas' relational account of sloth, slothful people want all the comforts of being in a relationship, the identity, security, love, and happiness it brings, while ultimately resisting or refusing to let love change them or make disciples of them. They're like a married couple who long for a relationship of unconditional love, but who chafe at the thought of disciplining their own desires or sacrificing themselves in order to maintain that relationship and allow it to flourish. So, sloth is this resistance towards love and specifically the demands of love in our relationship with our Maker and in our vocations here on earth, whatever they are. W.H. Anand, in his poem The Age of Anxiety, neatly conveys the bottom line of sloth rooted in pride. We would rather be ruined than changed. We would rather die in our dread than climb the cross of the moment and let our illusions die. Avoiding the cross of the moment, in Auden's language, ends up in some deep and bitter sadness, even misery and self-contempt, and very often loneliness. De Young writes that sloth is a deliberate resistance or aversion of the will, not just felt, but endorsed or consented to. Sloth is the will's aversion to our participation in God, that is, our resistance to his making us like nature to him through the Holy Spirit's presence and work within us, and thus our resistance to the friendship and love grounded in that likeness of nature. This is an important thing. It's not just the feeling of it, but the action upon that feeling, the endorsement. The consenting to. Some of the penitential manuals tell us that obstinacy is a sure sign of sloth, and I think it's a good one to keep in mind. What is obstinacy? The penitential manual Jacob's Well aligns it with being stony hearted. When your heart is as hard as stone, you don't weep for those who are suffering. You have no sweetness, no ruth or pity, no love or fear for those in tough positions. You're avoiding feeling those feelings. Medieval writers document extensively that laziness and forgetfulness are a symptom, not a cause, of sloth. Equally, they write that overbusyness, recklessness, and burnout are symptoms of sloth. This makes sense because according to our temperament, whatever kind of person you're like, we distract ourselves from our difficult calling and try to control our spiritual lives and vocations as much as we can. For some of us, that looks like avoidance, quietism, and yes, perhaps laziness. For others of us, that looks like, quote, too great a zeal, end quote, in the words of the medieval writers, for fasting, for excessive volunteering at church, and spiritual practices that end up being us trying to claw our way out of what we're actually asked to do in love and friendship. Friendship. Distractions and diversions from the difficult way of charity look different for different people, yet they end similarly. Sloth as a sure road to contempt and despair and restless unhappiness is well documented. So how did sloth get so associated with bodily laziness, leaving its spiritual components behind? One thing is that the Desert Fathers and their spiritual descendants advised manual labor as a remedy for sloth. And this works sometimes, but not exclusively. I have this hunch that it's a remedy less as a labor itself and more because you're doing something difficult. And sometimes, at least this is the way it is for me, when I accomplish one difficult thing, I feel empowered to do more difficult things, especially if I'm doing it outside in fresh air but medieval people disagree with me on that point. They have some rather unhelpful comments. Ceaselessly work, some urge, disregarding their own earlier points about busyness as a distraction. Jacob's Well uses an incredibly lame story about a hermit who built his shelter close to a spring of water so that he didn't have to walk that far to get his water. It turned out that angels were counting his footsteps and determining the merit of his hermithood. So then he moved further away, he had to walk further to the spring, and that solved both his sloth and his merit problem. Ugh. Because of exemplar like these, sloth eventually became inseparable from one of its main symptoms laziness of the body, or lethargy, or a lack of effort. In the modern West, this was useful. Because thinking of sloth this way fits one of capitalism's main narratives about the world, that work is the way to salvation. This kind of restless, roving activity that is a symptom of sloth sometimes became a secular virtue. Joseph Pieper, the mid-century Thomas philosopher and theologian, wrote that sloth has become, quote, concept of the middle-class work ethic. The fact that it's numbered among the seven capital sins seems, as it were, to confer the sanction and approval of religion on the absence of leisure in the capitalistic industrial order. The industrious worker is just as likely as a couch potato to be under the influence of sloth and its root pride. So ironically, then, one resistance to sloth is actually rest and quiet contemplation in defiance to the demands of our busy, busy life that offers distractions and diversions and work galore. And let this be a lesson to you that perhaps you don't need to remember, but it's nice sometimes to remind yourself laziness itself is not a sin. In the long tradition, the usual remedy for sloth is the gift of strength. Sometimes that's um, perseverance. The Summa Virtutum de Remedius Anime defines strength as the considered accepting of risks and the long-lasting bearing of hardships. It takes Isaiah 35 for inspiration. It invites us to use the remedy of strength, strengthen the feeble hands and confirm the weak knees. Say to the faint-hearted, take courage. In the classic medieval love of cataloging and listing, that manual breaks down strength into several categories. The first is great-heartedness, which is the voluntary and reasonable undertaking of difficult things. For example, conquering your fear of heights and trying out rock climbing. Not, say, free-climbing Yosemite, a la Alex Honnold. The second was confidence, confidence which I was delighted to see in a medieval text because um, you don't see that very often. Confidence was defined as the certain hope to carry to its end a task one has undertaken. It's closely associated with Jesus' promises for sanctification and eternal life. The next is composure. Not to be afraid of the inconveniences that lie before us and accompany the task we have begun. Another is high-mindedness, carrying difficult and noble things to their ends. And the last is constancy, the mind's stability that is firm and persevering in its resolve. Note that medieval folks were very aware that doing difficult things was a prolonged process like that, they assign different virtues to the beginning, middle, and ends of daunting projects under this banner of strength. The Book of Vices and Virtues offers a perspective that I really like. It defines the gift of strength as a new heart, a noble heart, and hardy, noble to despise all that the world may offer and give him. And of this hardiness speaketh our Lord what he saith. Blessed be they that hunger and thirst for righteousness. This is a heart that sees value where it is and where it is not. Then the book clarifies that last bit in a way that encourages me greatly. He saith not, Blessed be they that do righteousness, but blessed be they that have hunger and thirst for righteousness. None of us truly know how to do right, and He knows our weakness, which is why He blesses our desire and not our actions. So our misguided attempts might go awry, but the Lord sees and blesses our desire in them. This is the virtue of a valiant friend who comes into the fray to undergo hardship with their suffering friend. It's described by the very old-fashioned word, duty. You're not picking fights, but you're undaunted by those obstacles in the way of love. And the way of doughtiness is open to anyone who desires, from the smallest elementary schooler to the elderly grandparent. The habit makes not the monk nor arms the knight, but the good heart and doughty works. Strength is allied with good hope, trustiness, patience, and security. What is security doing there? Security means that one rests in the immutable, unchangeable fact that one is loved by God, and though the waters are deep and frightening, the love is deeper still. Constancy, too, accompanies strength. I had my youngest at the beginning of the pandemic, April 3rd, 2020 to be exact. It was dreadful. We named her Constance before we knew that the pandemic was coming, but it turned out to be the right name at the right time. The road ahead was filled with fear and hard decisions, but her name became a promise of God's love and a hope that we would not shy away from the hard things. Constance is the virtue that maketh the heart as steadfast and trusty to God, as a tower that is founded upon the hard rock and as a tree that is rooted hard in good earth, that neither shakes nor bows for any wind that may come and blow. That is to say for no adventure that comes, good or evil. The manuals also urge us to participate in the Eucharist to increase our strength and to resist sloth. I imagine it somewhat irreverently like a marathon runner who stops to drink water or Gatorade. They note that remembering Christ's passion can help to heal obstinacy and sloth. Intentionally soften your heart, Cry at the thought of love. I myself add in rest as an antidote to sloth and slow contemplative time. I want to end this reflection with this from Julian of Norwich, the great contemplative writer who believes that sloth, dread and fear of hard things and of our own weakness, alongside despair are the sins most difficult to discern and handle. We fear ourselves. We fear that we're too much for God in our sinfulness and inability. And she writes, God showed two manner of sickness that we have. That one is unpatience or sloth. For we bear our travail and our pain heavily. The other is despair or doubtful dread, as I shall say after. Generally, he showed sin wherein all is comprehended. But in special, he showed none but these two. And these two are that which most travaileth and tempesteth us. As by that our our Lord showed me, of which will he we be amended." I speak of such men and women that for God's love hate sin and dispose them to do God's will. Then by our spiritual blindness and bodily heaviness, which are most inclining to these. Therefore, it's God's will that they be known. And then shall we refuse them as we do other sins. This unknowing of love, it is that most letteth God's lovers as to my sight. For when we begin to hate sin, and amend ourselves by the ordinance of Holy Church. Yet there dwelleth a dread that letteth us, prevents us, by the beholding of ourself and of our sin done before, and some of us for our everyday sins. For we hold not to our covenants, nor keep not our cleanness that the Lord setteth in us, but fall oftentimes into so much wretchedness that it's shame to say it. This dread we take sometimes for a meekness, but it's a foul blindness and a weakness. What does Julian mean here? Her words remind us that sometimes we confuse sloth with consciousness of our sins, our own daunting, massive inabilities and failures. It's almost the flip sign of pride. And she reminds us time and time again that we are loved as we are. Sloth can't bring itself to believe that the love is real that the strength is there for us in our hour of need, and that the challenges that come our way are often good for our souls and bodies though we can't see it or even remotely understand it. I'll end with Julian's words as a good reminder for my own slothful soul. This is from chapter 73. For some of us believe that God is almighty and may do all, and that he is all wisdom and can do all, but that he is all love and will do all, there we have trouble. He's all love, and he will do all. Thanks for listening, friends. Next week, we'll consider avarice, or greed, and generosity, or mercy. If you'd like to see more of what I've been up to, Sign up for my free Substack newsletter, Medievalish with Grace Hammond, which comes out on the twelfth of every month, and you get a very cool Julian of Norwich printable with it. I'd love to hear from you if you enjoyed this episode. It would mean a lot to me if you would rate it on whatever platform you're listening and leave a comment. I'm also around on Twitter at Grace Hammond PhD and Instagram at Old Books with Grace, and I'd love to hear from you on either of those websites.